Now go ahead and turn to the next page of your bulletin, and let's hear the word of God for us this morning. Genesis 1, 26 through 2, verse 3. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. It's, it's, it's so good to be back here. We're reopened here at the Stewart and it's been three weeks out of uh, Good Friday and uh, Easter weekend. And um, it really is good uh, to be with you all this morning. And for those who are tuning in uh, live stream, it's good that we're all here to worship God together this morning. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors at the church, and I do see um, some new faces that I haven't seen before, so please, um, at the end of the service, I look forward to uh, saying hi and meeting you. Don't be afraid. Um, please come up and uh, say hello and introduce yourself. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, we started a new sermon series called Counterchisms, Counterchisms. Uh, debunking secular narratives. And the way that I want to go about describing what we're trying to accomplish through our sermon series uh, this time around is by talking about the placebo effect. Now, we all know what a placebo effect is. It's, when you th it's that effect that you get when you think you took medicine, but it actually was a blank, right? There was saline in the IV bag instead of the real medicine, but your mind tricks the body into thinking that you're actually getting something that's good for your body that's going to heal some sickness, um, and you might even see some short-term gains out of it. Uh, you might start to see some improvement in your health, so you, you're going to see those short-term gains, but actually in the long term, if you just continue on the placebo, you know that actually it's not going to address the sickness at all, and eventually you're just going to get sicker and sicker and eventually, it's just going to kill you, right? And that's the danger with the placebo effect. You think you got the real thing, but you didn't. And uh, what we're trying to say through this sermon series is that the secular narrative, the, the storyline that the world has sold you and that, in large part, all of us have bought into is actually a placebo effect. Uh, you might 
start to feel some immediate short-term gains, but in the long term, what we're saying that it's actually not good for your health. In fact, you're just going to get sicker and sicker and sicker. And so what we're trying to do, again, is trying to identify what those placebo effects are in our culture and to contrast that with the remedy, the treatment that's actually going to make you better. And we're going to run through just various topics throughout this series. Today, we're going to be talking about meaning, meaning. And rather than talking about meaning from some, I don't know, existential standpoint, like what is meaning? Um, we're we're going to actually just very kind of simply and maybe kind of bluntly uh, conflate two terms together, which is meaning and purpose. And I think that's And I think maybe we'll do that because I think that's how we actualize it. Like we find meaning in our purpose, right? Purpose and in meaning. And to make it even more relevant and practical for our daily living, I wanted to talk about finding meaning and purpose in our work, in our everyday work, in our jobs, in our professions. Uh, The average person will spend 90,000 hours working, including commute time. Uh, Sounds like a lot of time. Uh, and something like 80% of us hate their work and they don't find deeper meaning and purpose in their work. That was Google, by the way, so it's probably right. Um, and so today, what we're going to try and do is talk about work, talk about what the world thinks about work. And uh, what we're going to contend today is that it's, it actually has kind of a placebo effect on you. And then just contrast that with the remedy, uh, the biblical account of what it says about work. And then uh, finally, we'll talk about ways to apply that biblical view of work in our lives. And so we'll take a look at what the world says about work, what God says about work, what God has done about work, and what that means uh, for our work. First, what the world says about work. You know, there's this basic storyline written by the world when it comes to work, and it goes something like this. Work is evil. But it might be a necessary evil because it pays the bills and expenses. Uh, But at best, it's really a means to an end. And there are two ends that actually the world has in mind. Uh, And basically says that work is a means to rest and work is a means to identity formation. Uh, Work is a means to leisure rest. So basically the mantra goes something like work hard and then play later. I think that was like a Wiz Khalifa song, play, work hard, play later. Uh, work is just a means to basically do what you really want to do later, uh, like travel or sip margaritas on the beach or play golf all day or something like that. Um, it's the reason why we in our minds have actually sequenced our weeks in that order. Uh, if we work hard, then we get to play and rest on the weekends as we want to. Because you know what happens if you don't work hard during the week. Your work will pile up on you on the weekends, and you won't be able to rest. So how hard you work now is really a function of how much you can rest later. It's the reason why we salivate when we hear about certain individuals who've worked really hard in their 20s and their 30s and are able to retire in their 40s. I mean, how many of us wouldn't take that deal if it was available to us? Uh, Anyone who wouldn't take that? Uh, Work is a means to rest. But also work is a means to identity formation too because what you do tells you who you are. And that's why there's such a big emphasis on finding the exact right job because your entire identity uh, is at stake. You know, when we tell young people, what do you want to do? Or what do you want to become? 
we basically use those two terms or phrases interchangeably, right? They're synonymous. What do you want to do versus what do you want to be is really synonymous as we use it in society. Your work, therefore, is a means to knowing thyself. Uh, work is a means to identity formation. But, you know, there, there are huge problems with these narratives, and we're just going to run through maybe just three of them. Uh, first, just the fact that work is a means and not an end in itself means that work is only as good as, it, as what it can get you later. And what that means is that pretty much anything is better than work because work is just a means to something greater. Uh, work is thus de- devalued. Society uh, generally has a low view of work. Anything, uh, uh, anything uh, beats going to work. Am I right or am I right? Uh, it's, and it's not just in our culture that work is assigned this very like, low view, but the ancients actually had a very low uh, view of work as well. In Greek mythology, you guys know the story of Pandora's box. Um, and actually, it's, it's a really cool context for ha- how this story comes about. Basically, Prometheus, this guy, steals fire and gives it to humanity, and Zeus gets upset about that, sentences him to a lifetime of being chained to a rock, and an eagle is going to eat his liver out every day, and then it closes up, but the same thing every day. Um, and then it's not until after, or, or later on, Hercules, Zeus's demigod son, rescues Prometheus. But Zeus is still pretty upset at this, and here's where we kind of pick up in the story of Pandora's box, but Zeus is upset about that. He wants to exact vengeance on humanity, and so he concocts his plan, and he's going to give to humanity something, but it's a trick. Um, At first, it seems all benevolent because he's going to gather all the gods of Olympus and say, you know what, let's gift to humanity woman, woman. And uh, into woman, I I want all the gods of Olympus to kind of play their part and give something to woman that's going to help humanity. And so from, you know, Athena, she uh, woman gets wisdom. And from Aphrodite, she gets beauty. And from Hermes, she gets cunning. And uh, after all them play a part, there's woman, this gift to humanity. And her name is called uh, Pandora. And Pandora is given uh, by Zeus this box or this jar, and and Zeus says, don't open this, whatever you do. Well, we know how the story goes. Pandora opens the box and is released into the world all these evils of every kind, hatred, war, death, hunger, sickness, and including work. Work came out of Pandora's box, Um, a real low uh, view of work indeed. And then later on, Cicero, right, this Roman statesman, scholar, and philosopher, uh, thought that work was actually below or beneath the dignity of any Roman citizen. Um, And he said that uh, in his essay, The Politics, that work should be relegated to those at the bottom of society like slaves. Uh, It was true for the ancients that they had a low view of work, and so do we. It carries over into modern day. Uh, It's a problem when you make work a means to an end because there's always something greater than work itself, and what happens is you end up having a very low view of work. Uh, Work as means to leisure and rest, that also is problematic uh, because if you think about it just a little bit, uh, you're making two antithetical things a function of them for each other. 
And so you have to work to get rest, uh, but then, you know, like the cycle has to repeat. And so how much rest can you actually get? It's cyclical, right? It's unsustainable. I mean, the whole paradigm just, it, it implodes on itself. And in case that logic just doesn't connect for you or doesn't go the full way for you, just think about your lived experience. Uh, how many of us can use a vacation right now? And how many of us wish that long weekends were actually long, right? Um, and, and, and we know, I mean, how many times this, this year did you say, oh, my goodness, like, I just need a break. I just need to get away. Now, think about that. How many times did you actually think that this year? Probably too many times to count. And I'm there with you guys, right? It's been a tough year for all of us. It's problematic to think that work is a means to rest because it, it kind of implodes on itself. But also problematic is the work um, if you think of it as a means to identity. This is hugely problematic because you always have to achieve it. And so identity is actually something that you perform. Uh, but what if you lose your job? Or if your role in your company changes? You lose more than just the paycheck, right? You'll lose your sense of self. Or your sense of self might be different tomorrow. Uh, you won't just be discouraged if you lose your work. You'll actually be dismantled. Erin uh, Callen, who is, um, she was the, a, a former CFO of Lehman Brothers before they filed for bankruptcy in 2008 during the recession. But at one time, she was dubbed as the most powerful woman on Wall Street. And this is what she writes about work and identity. If you uh, look on the first pages of your bulletin, you'll find that there. You can follow along. She says this. I didn't start out with the goal of devoting all of myself to my job. It crept in over time. Each year that went by, slight modifications became the new normal. First, I spent a half an hour on Sunday just organizing my email to-do list and calendar to make Monday morning easier. Then I was working a few hours on Sunday. Then all day, my boundaries slipped away until work was all that was left. Inevitably, when I left my job, it devastated me. I couldn't just rally and move on. I did not know how to value who I was versus what I did. What I did was who I was. Additionally, if you are what you do, then what do you really think about manual laborers, people who scrub toilets or scrape gum uh, off school desks, which I did for a summer after I graduated high school, uh, leads to kind of this demeaning, classist, and judgmental society. I'm afraid society, and we even as Christians, as the church, have trusted in a placebo. Now, we think this is working, but it's actually killing us. So what's the better way? Well, what God says about work um, and this is what God says about work. Read with me Genesis 1, 26 to 27. You can find it in the mil middle of your bulletin. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, you'll have to allow me to lay down some context here. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, meaning that it was uninhabitable, thus uninhabited. And only darkness was over the face of the deep, but the Spirit of God uh, was over the face of the waters, and he was about to act with his life-giving principle. And then God speaks. He speaks into existence out of nothing, all that you see in creation. And over six days, what we see is that God is having total mastery and artistry, by the way, over creation, speaking it into being. And unlike any other creation account during the time where creation came about through some turmoil or some struggle, the biblical account says that creation comes into being by God's spoken word. This is total authority. This is creative inspiration. And in the literary framework of how Genesis 1 is written, just the way that it's written, we see that God is creating these big spaces and then later on filling those spaces with hosts and dominion. And so day one, we see that God creates light and dark, but it's not until day four that God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Day two, he creates sky and water, but it's not until day five that he creates birds and fish of the water. Day three, he creates land of vegetation, and then day six, he creates living creatures. And so what we see is that God is creating domains and then filling those domains later. Another way to say it is that God is creating kingdoms and he's filling it with dominion. And this is God as creator God, a sovereign ruler and master and king over all the kingdoms of the earth. And on the sixth day, God creates man and humanity. And he creates all humanity in his image. And this is hugely important. And this would have been wildly shocking to say during the day because in the ancient world, only kings were thought to be in the image of God. So, for instance, Pharaoh considered himself to be a divine ruler. That carried down through the centuries, and Caesar thought the same thing. If you took a denarius during the time of Jesus, uh, you would have seen Tiberius, son of God. And even down into European history where Louis XIV, right, uh, believed in this thing called the chain of beings where he thought that the king of France was the closest to God and thus was, was someone who had the closest association with the divine. Basically, one or just a few elite at the top of society could claim to be the son of God. And even in modern days, some men today think that they're gifts from God to women and to society. Uh, but in contrast, what we see is that man, all of humanity, is given the dignity of the image of God. Male and female, he created them to have this co-equal dignity. And man created in God's image was purposed for three things. This is what the image of God means for our meaning and for our purpose. God intended that man in his image would reflect God in his character and glory, just like a child would reflect the attributes um, of the father. Uh, he's, he, he's supposed to represent God as unique from every other thing in creation because he has this knowing capacity, this moral capacity, this holiness capacity meaning that he was created in knowledge and in righteousness and in holiness. And finally, this last R, right? We were meant to rule. We were meant to rule with God and for God and for his glory. And here's where we see the purpose of work come into play most poignantly. 
You see, God had in mind a great purpose for man, a great task and assignment, a great and glorious work for which he was made, and that was to have dominion, to rule just like God rules with ultimate authority. He's given this delegated authority to rule creation with God and for God and for his glory. We're royalty. We're created as royalty to represent and to reflect and to rule. Notice, by the way, just as a quick aside, man's identity is given before his labor. Uh, identity is royalty. You're created in the image, and as such, you're meant to reflect and, re- and represent and rule creation with God. Verses 28 and 31, God outlines for man this royal purpose. Read with me, Genesis 1, 28 and following. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them as food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Be fruitful and multiply. Literally procreate these living images, right? That's what happens when procreation happens. Living images are multiplied. Fill the earth, populate the entire world, and subdue and have dominion, meaning manage and steward God's creation. Well, what does this mean exactly? Well, we see it later in Genesis 2.15 when man is placed in a garden to work it and to keep it, meaning man is called to production and conservation. Take the good but raw material of creation and produce, produce something with it and discover the goodness of the creator giving glory to him who made all things. And so when I see chefs take raw ingredients and they dice and splice and boil and bake and rearrange the ingredients to make something amazing, uh, and, and, and when a chef is Christian and gives glory to God, I mean, that, I'm just seeing the purpose of God being fulfilled in mankind. Uh, stay-at-home parents, and this past year, all of us, to one degree or another, became stay-at-home parents. And you are literally participating in the mission of God to see his glory fill the whole earth. Plant it, shape it, till it, bend it, snap it, attach it. Rearrange it, allocate it, manage it, irrigate it, water it, cultivate it. I mean, just keep going, right? Design it, engineer it, build it, architect it, manufacture it. And as you do, discover the goodness of God's creation and the creator and praise him. That's the glorious and majestic and royal purpose for which we're called in our work. And that's one of the ways that you know that you're doing what God wants you to do. Is your work producing or cultivating something from God's good creation? And are you discovering its inherent goodness or working towards its goodness? Are you in digital design? Well, let me tell you, God is an artist. There's beauty in artistry and design. Are you a lawyer? 
Are you curbing injustice and protecting people's rights and liberties? Are you in asset management, right? Are you helping allocate wealth into good investments for people? Are you a musician, arranging and composing music into high-soaring symphonies? Are you a student? Are you getting to study and know God's creation so that you can discover and produce goodness and give him glory? We see later Adam names the animals. He assigns animals its name and its place. He categorizes it. He differentiates it. He uh, organizes it. He classifies the species, the first taxonomist and scientist. And this is written into the DNA of every human being because we're created in the image of God. I mean, if I gave my kids a pile of Legos, what's their natural instinct? It's to sort it, to arrange it, to build it. Kaylin might sneak a few pieces into her mouth at this point. Um, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything. And this is historically called the cultural mandate, uh, but this is actually more than just a cultural mandate to make culture. Gregory Beale, he's an Old Testament professor. He's formerly taught at Gordon-Conwell and also Westminster, uh, your beloved pastor's alma maters. Uh, uh, and he says that this is just more than a mandate to, to, to run along and to make culture like tools and music and civilization. But what he says is that this is a mission commission, a mission commission, the mission of God to see his glory fill the earth in which man will participate with privilege and joy. But, there's always a but, this glorious purpose for work all goes south, right? Man disobeys God and wants to decide for himself his own way of doing things. Instead of discovering the goodness of creation and the creator God, God wants to invent, uh, man wants to invent his own meaning of goodness. And because of that, because God is too holy to look, on, look upon disobedience and sin, he punishes man, he casts him out of the garden. And part of the curse is actually a curse on work itself. Genesis 3 says, Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And that's why we're feeling the effects of this curse today. It's why your work seems to fight against you every Monday morning. Thorns and thistles, sweat of your face. It's the reason why lab results are always inconclusive. It's why T-charts won't balance. It's, it's why MRIs are unclear and blurry. It's why your thesis won't write itself. Later in the Tower of Babel, man's going to come up with this brilliant plan too. Let's say, let, let's build this tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Let's work so that we can achieve and perform and accomplish our own identity. Achieving identity and resting in man-made glory rather than in God himself. Do you see yourself in the predicament of humankind lost in sin. That was in the beginning of history, but here we are today basically in the same spot, trying to make a name for ourselves, achieving identity through work, never being able to get out of this vicious cycle of work and rest. No wonder burnout. No wonder anxiety. Lost meaning and purpose for your work. 
What do we do? What do we do? At this point, I want to turn to actually another question. Not what do you do, but what has God done? And there's good news to those who can hear it today. So take heart, because the answer is Jesus. You guys remember Sunday, you know, Sunday Bible study lessons? The answer is Jesus. Uh, not just some placebo, but the real thing, Jesus. Because he is our remedy for our problem. Because in life, in his life and death and resurrection, uh, we can have an identity and rest that is forever and that cannot be taken away. Your identity no longer needs to be performed and achieved. No longer needs to be based on your performance or achievement. But now your identity is based on the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to you. And that work is finished, everybody. Your identity is the son of God. You're adopted into a family. You have a father and you're called beloved forever. And you belong to a family of faith. Uh, you never have to try and prove or earn your identity to keep it. Christ died to make this happen for you. Pierced hands and feet, bruised and battered, beaten, flayed and beating, uh, bleeding, then died and buried in a tomb. This was all so that you could be forgiven and be given a new name. And the proof that all this could be was that when Jesus rose from the grave, showing us that the Father accepted his son's sacrifice, vindicating him of all wrongdoings that he was accused in his life, and that opened up a way wide open, wide open for these promises to be true for you and me. And now we can finally rest too because it's finished. His work is accomplished on the cross and you can finally rest. You can sleep well every night. Deep rest I'm talking about. No matter what kind of day you had at work because nothing will take this eternal rest and comfort from you. You lost a client, you can sleep well at night. You lost credibility with colleagues, you can sleep well at night. You lost your job, you can still sleep well at night because the sleeplessness and restlessness of your soul Christ took upon himself on the cross when he endured the cosmic agony of his father's abandonment. And because he experienced a restlessness that we can never fathom, but we deserved, we never have to achieve or earn status or reputation or your deep soul rest ever again because they were achieved and accomplished and bought for you with the life of God's own son. And that's why we can sing. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, or when sorrow like seas billows roll, whether peace or sorrow, whatever your lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. In Christ, you have meaning and purpose in your work because Christ accomplish your identity and your rest on the cross. I want to close with just a, a, a few application points. You can get a job now, finally, that you're passionate about. Instead of going for status, reputation, or just solely going with the highest salary package. Because your identity um, has been secured in Christ now. You don't have to do it with a high salary or do it with some white-collar job or whatever. Uh, 
You're free from yourself, this inclination to try and earn and achieve your identity so you can pursue jobs that actually produce and cultivate and preserve things of God and his good creation for his praise. So that means a Christian should consider when they're searching for jobs whether a job is exploitive or oppressive or degrading or immoral or has crazy CO2 gas emissions. Uh, Also, not all jobs are suited for Christian living. And not all jobs you personally will be able to navigate with Christian virtue. I think Jesus said something like this. He said, if your industry causes you to sin, tear it out. Um, It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body or something like that. Uh, Not all of us are going to have the the maturity um, or the wherewithal to be able to stand certain industries. It may not be for you, but as a Christian, we can get serious about that uh, and, and get sober about those kinds of decisions. Also, just for perspective, which hopefully will give you this newfound motivation in the here and now, not all work is going to continue into eternity. And so guess what, doctors? You will no longer be needed in heaven. Uh, Lawyers, you won't be needed either. Pastors, we won't be needed either, man. Um, Because uh, it's only for the time being, it's only for this age that there are these problems that need kind of solving. But then when Jesus comes back, it will all be redeemed. And I don't say that to discourage you in your work today. Uh, I say that actually to encourage you because you can have great purpose in your work today because you know that that's so important to what God wants and desires. But you can also relax and not be over-anxious about your industry or your line of work because you know Christ will come back to redeem all things. Finally, we need a proper, we talked about having a proper relationship to work, but we also need a proper relationship to rest and uh you know i'm a little bit tempted to almost like make this like part two like another sermon in the sermon but just a few things here uh you can only properly rest if all your work is done right if you have deadlines or assignments hanging over your head you won't really be able to rest well you need to know that the greatest uh uh, work or deadline was finished on your behalf in christ on the cross and so that's why you can really rest Uh, Deuteronomy 5, I'm going to blitz through these. Uh, Deuteronomy 5 uh, talks about Sabbath, right? Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, right? Six days you shall work, on the seventh you shall keep it as holy because that's what God did. But then that last verse, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand. Why is God talking about slavery? Because the temptation for us, the great temptation for us on the Sabbath day is to be enslaved in our work. But don't you know that God, with his mighty hand, has freed you, liberated you uh, from enslavement of any kind, including your work. And so when you rest properly on Sunday or any other day, uh, you're, you're, you're declaring your liberation, that God has rescued you with his mighty hand. And for some of us, Uh, who've been in careers for a long time, and it's really just been nonstop for you for years and years and years. Uh, It may mean uh, considering limited productivity, maybe fewer goals. Uh, You know, every seventh year, I don't know if you know, but in Israel, every seventh year, the land got a Sabbath. The land got a Sabbath. And so whatever grew out that year is what you had to consume. 
It was an act of trust in God that even if you stop your work, that God doesn't stop his work to provide for your needs. And so consider, are you trusting God with your life, with your work, that if you don't work for a day, can you trust that God is still providing for every work that you need, that he is working for you? Finally, Mark 3, God heals this man's withered hand on a Sabbath, and the religious leaders get all hot about that. Um, In the very least, I know it means more, but in the very least, Sabbath is about making withered things whole again. Withered things whole again. Uh, The goal is rehydrating the things that are arid. And so are there certain relationships, friendships, that need rehydrating? I think that kind of holds true for all of us right now. Um, Is your prayer life dry? Well, we have prayer in the mornings every Sunday, and you can join us for that. I think there's a Zoom link for that somewhere. Uh, Maybe we need a reminder. Uh, Maybe you need to just actually catch up on physical sleep. So sleep. Don't go out and just rest, sleep, take a nap. And you know how delicious those Sunday naps can be. And then uh, are you still trying to finish Reason for God? Finally finish it this year and take, take it to a cafe and just read and find rest in Christ. In Christ, we have every good meaning and purpose for our everyday work. Let me close this with a word of prayer.